Good morning. The word of God from 2 Chronicles 36, verses 9 through 21. God's people are exiled to Babylon 600 years before Christ. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. In the spring, Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, along with the valuable articles of the Lord's temple. Then he made Jehoiakim's brother, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah at the Lord's command. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who, who had made him swear allegiance by God. He became obstinate and hardened his heart against, against returning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the leaders of the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds, imitating all the detestable practices of the nations, and they defiled the Lord's temple that he had consecrated in J Jerusalem. But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or young women, elderly or aged, he handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned all its palaces, and destroyed all its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bailey, for reading for us this morning. I'm going to invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to page 782 if you're using the Bible underneath the seat in front of you, but turn to the book of Daniel if you are using your own copy. We're beginning a new series this week that will take us through the end of the year as we look at the book of Daniel. So let me ask you a question. What do you think Jesus' favorite Old Testament book was? I heard Psalms. It's a good guess. It's not even a fair question, really, is it? Like, how do we even give an answer to that question? It's impossible to know. But I don't think it's wrong to ponder the question. Jesus was truly God, but he was also truly man. But what metric would we even use to hazard that guess, if we had to guess? 
Well, if you added up the number of times that the New Testament quotes to, quotes from, or alludes to an Old Testament book, then we could narrow it down to three. Psalms and the book of Isaiah being two of them. But when it comes to the book that Jesus alludes to most, then we would have to say his favorite may well have been the book of Daniel. Every time Jesus, is, Jesus uses the phrase, the Son of Man, he is referencing this Old Testament book. Now, if that surprises you concerning the book of Daniel, you're not alone. The book of Daniel is a mystery to many of us. It's this incredible soup of familiar stories that we tell children over and over again. You know, nice bedtime stories like three kids getting shoved into a fiery furnace and someone else getting thrown into a lion's den. Those familiar stories mixed with, well, bizarre visions that we as adults tend to shy away from. Maybe we view Daniel a bit like that crazy uncle or cousin at the family reunion. You know the one I'm talking about, right? The one that you have to say hi to and you might even enjoy hearing a story or two, but man, when he really gets going, your head's on a swivel. It's just time to move on to something a little more, well, familiar, comfortable, enjoyable, perhaps. My goal this morning in this message is to introduce us to the book of Daniel in such a way that we are excited to study it throughout the end of this year. So let's allow the book to introduce itself using seven statements. Now the number seven is strategic and it's the perfect number for this task. You may ask the question why? Well, because the number seven shows up throughout the book of Daniel. It's all over the place. Sometimes it's just the number seven. Sometimes it's seven in a multiple of ten, seventy. And sometimes it's in half, three and a half. But it shows up all over the place. So this morning, let's meet the book of Daniel through seven different statements. Statement number one, Daniel is a book. Shocking, I know. I nearly lost some of you. You're thinking, thank you, Captain Obvious. How long did you spend studying for that particular point? Let me ask you, did you ever play that game as a kid, that guessing game with your friends, where it begins, each game begins with this question, are you a animal, a plant, or a mineral? Maybe you remember uh, those questions from the book Alice in Wonderland, where she plays it with two other characters in the book. Those three categories actually form the basis for a British panel show back in the 50s that only a couple of people in this room may actually have watched. If you want to truly understand something, anything, you have to know some basic realities like are you an animal, a plant, or a mineral. So let's start by asking Daniel, are you an animal, plant, or a mineral? And Daniel's going to respond, I'm a book. But friends, the book we are meeting is being very modest. Daniel is not just a book. It is a literary masterpiece. 
It's a book written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. And that's not simply because the author is showing off his linguistic skills or because he gets confused. It's because the languages he chooses reflects the reality that he's living. He's a Hebrew that's removed from Israel and brought to a foreign land longing to go back to Israel, longing for the exile to be over. Hebrew, Aramaic, Hebrew. It's a literary masterpiece. Also because it's a book divided perfectly in half. The first half, our first six English chapters, are all stories. The $18 word is narrative. Now I know there used to be $15 words, but inflation's drawn everything up, so we'll call them $18 words. The first half is all narratives. But the second half, the last half, is full of fantastic apocalyptic visions and prophecies, fantastic beasts and where to find them, rising out of the water, talking horns on monsters, uprooting the other horns on the monster's head, visions of brilliant and dazzling spiritual beings in communication with Daniel. And it's a stunningly cohesive mix, even with all of these elements, technicolor dreams, Shocking interpretations of those dreams, surprise reversals in the book, startling revelations, all appear on almost every page. And when you just begin to get used to one genre, you keep reading and you're immediately thrust into another one. It's practically magical, yet it's all tied together, cohesively. It's also a perfectly balanced book. Now, we've talked in the past how scripture writers will sometimes place or use a literary device in which they place the most important piece of information at the center of the book or of the passage, like in a psalm. And then each concentric circle leading from that center is parallel all the way out to the edge. We've called that bullseye writing. The $18 word for that is called a chiasm. Or a chiasm. This symbol is the Greek letter key. It looks like an X. Think of the center of the X as the center of the bullseye. Everything is oriented around the center. And in the book of Daniel, he doesn't just write one chapter in a chiastic form. His whole book is one giant chiasm. It's a literary masterpiece, and we'll come back to this throughout this particular series, but this slide shows how this chiastic structure shows up in the book. You may want to snap a picture of it as we will return to it, and as you read the book on your own, this structure will become important as it helps us interpret the book. Here's a goal for you. Sometime this month, Sit down and read the entire book of Daniel from cover to cover in one sitting. That will take you just about an hour and a half. Let's honor the book of Daniel by treating it to be what it is. A book, a cohesive literary masterpiece deserving our attention. Daniel's a book, so we need to read it like a book. 
statement number two introducing Daniel, though. Daniel is a history book. Now, how many of you enjoyed history in high school and college? Raise your hand. How many of you did not enjoy history in high school and college? That's what I thought. Almost a 50-50 split. I get it. All the names and dates and places, it could be confusing, perhaps even boring. But one of the enchanting things about Daniel is the fact that it is actually history. So let me give you another encouragement. Once you've read the book of Daniel through the first time, an hour and a half, just cover to cover as you would any other story, any other book, read it through a second time, maybe in the month of September. Take a colored pencil or a pen that won't bleed through the pages. And now, Pastor Jeff, you may want to cover your ears to what I'm about to suggest, but that's okay. The rest of us read the book through and circle or underline or box every reference to time in the book, whether that's to days or years, time words like until that are used to note a span of time. Just don't tell Pastor Jeff that you're writing in your Bible, but I give you permission. If you do that and then go back through the book of Daniel and count up every reference to time, you will have over 50 references. The book of Daniel is immersed in time. Past time, present time, future time. It's history. Now, maybe since Bailey read 2 Chronicles 36 for us, you've been trying to figure out why on earth that was the passage read, and how does it relate to Daniel? Well, for that, we need to enter our time machine here. There was a time we would say, put your imaginary thinking caps on. Imagine for a moment that you're an Israelite in the years leading up to the birth of Christ. So just around the early AD years. Every week as you go to synagogue to worship, you know that a teacher or a rabbi is going to choose one scroll from a set of three books. Either the law, the prophets, or the writings. Now, these scrolls contain the same content that our English 39 books of the Old Testament contain, but in different order. And the last book in the last scroll is the book of Chronicles. It's not First and Second Chronicles, it's actually just one book. And the last section in that last book on that last scroll is Chronicles 36. And Second Chronicles 36, 5 through 7, overlaps in time to Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Look down at your Bible and let's read these couple of verses. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Daniel is a history book. And does this matter 
Yes, absolutely, because it reminds us as we read the book of Daniel that the story we ourselves are living is not isolated from history. It is united to the grand story of what God is already doing and has been doing since eternity past. Daniel, we will find, is caught up in something far bigger than his own existence. And friends, so are we. The story you are living is not grand because it's your story. The story you are living is grand because it unites us to the story God is writing. It's grand because it connects you to what God has been doing in the world for millennia. It's so easy to get wrapped up in our own stories, isn't it? Stories of joy or of dreams or of shattered dreams and sorrows. But the history of the book of Daniel confronts us and comforts us with the truth that our story is not unimportant, but it's a small piece of the much larger story that God is writing. And finding our place in that story is what gives meaning and purpose to life. And we'll discover more of what that means in the weeks ahead. Daniel is a book, and it's a history book. So we need to understand its context. But number three, Daniel is a storybook. Saying Daniel is a history book is saying that what Daniel wrote is true. Saying Daniel is a storybook tells us the form that that history takes. Some of the most well-beloved and well-known Bible stories are found in these 12 chapters. Maybe you remember from your own childhood the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Or Daniel in the lion's den. Or the crazy king and his need for a manicure after his fingernails grew like eagle's talons due to his bouts of insanity. And some of you are like, I don't remember that story. Read the book of Daniel. As human beings, we can't help but be story people. Stories capture us. They enrapture us. They define us. They move us. They unite us. Daniel is full of true stories, powerful stories that have encouraged and inspired people for literally generations. Let me give you just two examples of what I mean. Back in 204 AD, a mere 1,820 years ago, a man named Hippolytus wrote a commentary on Daniel. Why did he choose Daniel a mere 170 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, it's because his brothers and sisters were facing martyrdom and severe persecution from the Romans. And in the mind of Hippolytus, Daniel was the prime choice to strengthen his brothers and sisters to encourage them to courage because stories have the power to encourage, strengthen, and inspire us. But let me give you a second example. 
two weeks ago, some of us here enjoyed several nights of worship with multiple black churches at Resurrected Baptist Church and the Bible conference that the Fellowship of Chattanooga Churches held. One of those evenings, a choir sang a Negro spiritual, which is the technical category of music defining a whole group of songs that were written and sung by enslaved black men and women here in the South. And I was moved to tears as these image-bearing brothers and sisters beautifully and powerfully sang a song that their image-bearing forebears who were enslaved would have sung in chains. And what was the content of the song? Here it is. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? And why not every man? He delivered Daniel from the lion's den, Jonah from the belly of the whale, and the Hebrew children from the fiery furnace, and why not every man? The moon runs down in a purple stream, the sun refused to shine, every star did disappear, yes, freedom shall be mine, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel, deliver Daniel, deliver Daniel, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel, and why not every man? When these dear men and women just a few generations ago, if we're being honest with ourselves, when they needed encouragement to persevere under intense oppression, when they needed something to cling to for hope, where did they turn? Well, they turned to the power of their Lord as shown and demonstrated in the stories of the book of Daniel. Daniel is a book, so we need to read it like a book. Daniel is a history book. We need to understand its content and context. Second, Daniel is a storybook. We need to enjoy the stories. Fourth, Daniel is a prophetic and apocalyptic book. To be honest, I can't help but smile as we get to this fourth point. Now, we're not going to spend long here, but I think it's important to understand this. The first story in Daniel records history that took place precisely in 605 BC. There is no dispute about that. But the prophetic portions of Daniel account for history all the way through to approximately 168 to 164 BC. Now remember when we're talking BC, time looks like it runs backwards. It doesn't count up. That means that the book of Daniel prophesies events at least 400 years before they took place. Now if you start to read any modern scholarship on the book of Daniel, almost without fail, you will find very smart men saying that Daniel cannot be entirely entrusted, or rather trusted. They say that Daniel didn't actually write the book in the 6th century before Christ. It actually had to be written sometime in the 2nd century before Christ by someone pretending to be Daniel, by taking Daniel as a pseudonym. So the next logical question should be, why do they say that? Well, let's describe it like this. If you came across a book tomorrow, written by a guy claiming to know what would happen 400 years before it, 
what might make you disregard that book? Probably the main reason would be if he was wrong in what he said, right? Let's just say the guy was writing in 1600, and he prophesied that in exactly 400 years, the world's going to end in the year 2000. And if you're picking this up in 2024, or rather 2023, are you going to believe the guy? Well, probably not. The guy was wrong. So is this why scholars say we can't trust Daniel? Because he was wrong. Well, precisely the opposite. The complete accuracy of the prophetic portions of Daniel are the main reason these scholars say we shouldn't take Daniel at face value. They say no one could be that accurate. The guy had to be writing after these prophecies actually took place, looking back as if they were history, and saying they were going to happen in the future. Because they're so accurate. Now friends, if we believe in a God that can raise Jesus from the dead, don't we believe in a God that's able to clearly communicate the future in advance? Absolutely. God is the orchestrator of history. I hope this whets your appetite just a little bit for the prophetic portions of Daniel that have already been fulfilled and for those that have yet to be fulfilled. Because let's be honest, we live in a crazy world, don't we? On the one hand, we have, bless you, seemingly credible people under oath before Congress reporting that the government is hiding information on UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomena, nor normally formally known as UFOs. Crazy videos are out there on the internet. You've probably seen them. Crazy testimonies. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have respected men in the world of technology that are genuinely concerned about the speed that AI is developing, artificial intelligence. Men who know their stuff are fearful that at some point, AI will become generally conscious, able to outpace humanity in knowledge with potentially terrifying results. Interesting times. And we could respond in several unhealthy ways, like, well, first of all, going down a rabbit hole to investigate on, on our own every viral video of alien encounters or UAPs on YouTube. But that's not going to be a necessarily beneficial response. Or we could become so worried and anxious about technological advances in our culture that we become almost stress-paralyzed, anxious, worried about things that are, frankly, beyond our control. But friends, these responses don't evidence the faith that God invites us to. He has given us apocalyptic books like Daniel to strengthen our faith. But that brings us to the second part of this statement. Daniel is a prophetic and an apocalyptic book. Put simply, apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic and action-charged prophecy. Some of the scenes are bizarre and shocking. The imagery is vivid and at times, frankly, nightmarish. 
The symbols can be confusing. That's the genre of apocalyptic. But apocalyptic literature like Daniel is written not to confuse us, but to comfort us. Not to make us fearful, but rather to strengthen our faith. So Daniel is to be read like a prophetic and apocalyptic book. And so we expect to be stretched as we study it. Number five, Daniel is a theological book. Now, as with all of Scripture, Daniel is radically God-centered. But let's be honest, we tend to forget that as we read our Bibles, don't we? We tend to read our Bibles to discover more about ourselves. But the Bibles were writ- Bible was written primarily to tell us about God. It's not primarily about us. It's primarily about God and what he has done. And in the book of Daniel, God, his king, and his kingdom are declared to be sovereign over all other kings and kingdoms. Like a song on repeat, we are told over and over again that God's kingdom is the only eternal kingdom. But at times, isn't God's sovereignty hidden from us? It's hard to perceive to the point that we begin to question it. Is God actually in control? And Daniel is similar to the book of Esther in this way. In the book of Esther, you actually don't find one reference to God at all. But his fingerprints are everywhere. In Daniel's experiences and in the experiences of his three friends, the presence of God from moment to moment seems highly questionable. And so Daniel will confront us with this question. How committed are you to the kingdom of God when you can't see the king? Daniel will shock us. He will slay us. He will metaphorically slap us awake to the heart-stopping reality that the kingdom of God was and is worth dying for. But is this some sort of warlike propaganda? The sort of propaganda that, I don't know, motivated the kamikaze pilots to fly their airplanes into battleships during World War II? Give your life for the fatherland without any real substance to the sacrifice that you're giving? Well, it's not like that at all. At one man, as one man puts it, God is more important than life because God's power trumps death. That's one of the themes of the book of Daniel. God always preserves his people regardless of what they face because he promises to raise them from the dead. That is the final promise given to Daniel at the end of the book when his mind is still spinning with visions. God says, you will be raised up at the last day. Go your way, Daniel. It's okay. I've got this. So because Daniel is a theological book, we should plan and prepare to worship God as we see his glory more clearly revealed. Number six, sixth, 
Daniel is a Christ-revealing book. That being the case, look for Jesus. The true stories become paradigms that foreshadow the future and tell us of Christ. We'll discover ways to do this as we study the book together, so I'm not going to go into great detail here, but may I simply make one connection to again whet your appetite. We've already referenced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into the fiery furnace, right? What do we learn from that story? At least this. For the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, for the one who embraces God's kingship, it is infinitely safer to be shoved into a fiery furnace for your faith than to be the one shoving. The one's shoving die before the fire. The ones who are shoved thrive in the fire. Why? Because Jesus is with his shoved ones. He never leaves them. Daniel is a Christ-revealing book, so look for Jesus. Finally, Daniel is a practical book. Many Christians in the last decade have confused earthly power with the establishment of God's kingdom. Some of us have believed the lie that the candidate we most closely align with in whatever upcoming election is the one who will help secure the future safety of God's people. Or we could just say it more crassly, they will help preserve the vision of the country that we want to live in. Christian nationalism has become a mainstream idea by those who hold respect in evangelical circles. But friends, the book of Daniel will not allow these sorts of assumptions to go unchecked. The repeated pattern we see in the book of Daniel is affliction before exaltation, groaning before glory, or to put it in New Testament terms, the cross before the crown. There is deliverance promised for the people of God. And there is a kingdom that will be established that can never be overthrown, but it looks more like resurrection than insurrection and political revolution. It looks more like a coming kingdom and less like a political candidate. Friends, in our day and time, Daniel is an eminently practical book. So engage your hands, your heads, and your hearts as we study it together. As you leave today, on your way out on the table in the back, there's a devotional book. It's called Daniel, Far From Home. It has 40 undated devotionals through the book of Daniel. I'd encourage you to grab one of those on your way out. If you're able to cover the $5 cost, Per copy, that's great, but if not, that's not a problem. Grab one anyway and use this in the coming weeks to further your study in this book of Daniel. 
Daniel is a book, it's a history book, it's a story book, it's a prophetic book, it's an apocalyptic book, a theological book, a Christ-revealing book, and a practical book. So let's pray together, asking God to help us read it like a book, understanding its context, enjoying the stories, expecting to be stretched, worshiping Him, looking for Jesus, and engaging our heads, hands, and hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in the year 2023, literally thousands of years before this book was penned, or thousands of years after this book was penned, you have provided for the strengthening of our faith, the challenging of our idols, the shaking of the foundations that we have built life upon, and you have done so by giving us your word. We thank you for the privilege of studying it. We thank you for the opportunity to look specifically at the book of Daniel in the coming weeks. Father, would you help us to engage it wholeheartedly Help us to treat it as the literary masterpiece it is, interpreting it correctly, understanding its historical context. Father, give us grace to expect to be stretched. Open our eyes to see your glory and your beauty in its pages. Help us to see Jesus. And Father, would you change us in, as individuals and as a church through our study together. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.